Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to direct and rule us according to your will and to comfort us in all our afflictions, to defend us from all error, and to lead us into all truth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Um, we're going to turn to page 48 in the Catechism. We're continuing to talk about the work and person of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I just want to kind of go back to, let's go back to page 47. Um, the question is asked, how does the Holy Spirit strengthen you for life in Christ? Just in 87. And the answer is, the Holy Spirit bears witness that I am a child of God, stirs my heart continually to worship and to pray, and inspires me to holiness and good works in Christ. Um, the Holy Spirit bears witness that I am a child of God. Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit um, dwelling internally in the Christian. We talked about this last week, you know, that you are, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of how the, how the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, um, with, with groanings, you know, this kind of idea that um, within us is the, the, the praying Holy Spirit making an appeal to the Father for our sanctification. Um, bearing witness that we're a child of God. Um, Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit as being something like um, a guarantee of our inheritance until we should receive it, right? And, and when you think about that, that's just, it's a wonderful image, right? Um, because what's the inheritance of the saints? Is it streets of gold? Is it a mansion? No, it's better than that. What is it? It's, it's to dwell in the presence of God. Um, and so, we, we receive that inheritance now, right? The, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Um, it's a guarantee of the inheritance. Um, so, that's great, right? And, and what does the Holy Spirit do within us? Well, He, he uh, not only bears witness that I'm a child of God, but stirs my heart continually to worship and to pray. Um, so if you're ever sitting in church or you're sitting at home and you're, it's kind of time for prayer and you find your mind nudged back, you know, kind of out of complacency and towards a kind of, um, uh, you know, attention to prayer, right, and attention to worship, um, you can just say, well, thanks, you know, thanks be to God for His Holy Spirit who, who leads me back uh, to, to prayer. And inspires, I love that word, inspires, because this is the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? To inspire, and in fact, that word inspire uh, is, is a word that directly relates to the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, this, this word inspire, breathed in, to breathe into me, um, and inspires me uh, to holiness and good works in Christ. The teaching of the church through the years, uh, through the centuries, has been that no one can do any good work unless the Holy Spirit is at work in him. Um, and this is the most basic uh, anti-Pelagian witness of the church. It's basically this. You can't do anything right unless God is at work in you. You can't do anything good, really, uh, because sin is so disastrous. And listen, I'm not, I'm not speaking of kind of like great Calvinistic Reformed doctrine. This is the doctrine of the whole Catholic Church, right? I'm just going to say this really strongly. Like, this is the doctrine of the fathers. This is the doctrine of the early church that you can't do anything without the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, this is the Council of Orange. This is Thomas Aquinas. This is like, I mean, it's just, it's replete throughout the tradition that you cannot do anything good without the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Why? Because, think about it, what is the end of any good work? I'm speaking of teleological ends, like, you know, big ends. Okay, so something like this. Um, you, you go out today and you bring uh, food to the poor. Okay, well, it's good for the poor, right? But what does Jesus say about it? Remember last week's gospel reading. As you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Okay. Well, so who's, what is the end of all our good works? It's God, right? It's God. Um, ev everything that we do uh, that's good, we do for God. 
Um, and this is something we have to, re- we have to remi- be reminded of. And, and in fact, uh, as, as Christians, we think we actually understand that the power and the end to, that draws us to do that thing, right? Uh, because an end is not just a kind of like, well, I do it for that purpose. But it's, that end actually draws me to do it um, is God. Um, God is working to this end. Um, and this is often a source of great confusion. You know, I, 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 I meet people all the time who, who say, you know, if I only had the willpower to, uh, well, shoot, there are some clergy who say this. You know, if you only had the willpower to actually do it right, well, then you'd do it, right? Well, that's just garbage, actually. It's, it's just not true. Does willpower matter? Yes, of course it does. But who perfects your will? The Holy Spirit, right? Who draws you to holiness? The Holy Spirit. Who brings every good work to full completion and to the end? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. So we have to say that the the Christian life is powered by the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is pneumatic. Um, And I love that term, pneumatic, right? Because, you know, anybody here have pneumatic tools at home? Okay. Well, years ago, I invested in in a whole set of pneumatic tools. You know, I thought, it's one of those things. I, I bought a car, and within three weeks, the car was, was totaled. Um, and I bought the car for like, I don't know, 1,800 bucks. And, um, and I'm, I'm getting to a point. Um, and lo and behold, the insurance company of the, of, of the one who rear-ended me said, you know, really sorry, the most we can give you is $5,000 for the car. And I said, fine with that. <laughs> and so I, I went and bought a $2,200. I got an upgrade, and, and we also got a new refrigerator. Uh, and then I had cash left over. And I was like, God, this is great. Well, I'm going to need to work on this car. And so I went and got one of those big old Craftsman compressors and, a, and an air ratchet and all the stuff, you know, the, the impact wrench and all of it, because I was going to do some work, and I, you know, wanted to have this. And and so I still have it. It's great. You know, if you ever get a chance, you should go do this. Uh, because air-powered tools are powerful, aren't they? You go to the dentist. How do they run that drill? It's, it's, it's pneumatic. Um, well, this is the power of the Holy Spirit, this, this power of God's breath in you. Okay? Uh, it's this power of what I would even say is a supernatural life. Right? That's the life of grace, is it not? Um, because here's the thing that I really want to make clear. Contemporary Christians in America in particular are given to this understanding that grace is just sort of a, a covering over of my faults. It's sort of this shrewd uh, play where God says, I see your sin, but I'm going to act like I don't, because if I did, I'd have to judge you. So I'm going to act like it's not there, even though I know it is. That's not grace. I mean, certainly in some sense, right? I'll just say, in some sense, grace is about um, uh, looking past our sin. But in a much greater sense, we have to remember what, what, uh, what the, the medieval theologians said about this, which is that grace perfects our nature. Right? God doesn't want to obliterate our human nature. He wants to restore it. He wants to save it. He wants to make it better than it was. How does He do this? By, by grace, by this supernatural power which He imparts to those who believe. And, and this comes by the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, so we, we really um, need to remember this, that um, not only uh, in, the, in the work of redemption is, uh, well, it's almost like this, you know. How does, how does Scripture teach us that uh, Scripture is written? by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? So, so God, all Scripture is what? God-breathed, right? Inspired by God, okay? Well, if that's true of Scripture, that, that we, we speak, uh, that, that, the, that the biblical authors uh, uh, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then, then the inspiration for us to live, to live lives of holiness and good works comes from the Holy Spirit, comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Oh, go ahead. Yes. So, this is always a, this is always a wonderful question. How do, you, how do you answer somebody who's like, 
you know, kind of the noble pagan, right? And this is, this is a question that Christian theologians have asked, like, what do you do with the, and I just use that word, the, the noble pagan, right? The, the good guy who's not a Christian, but who does all good, right? Um, I could answer it two ways. One is that maybe the Holy Spirit is working upon them to bring them to do good works, and they just don't know it. Now, that's highly possible. In fact, um, much of uh, Christian conversion, many Christian conversions have happened because people found themselves engaged in, uh, in good works, not realizing that they were working uh, in Christ by His Holy Spirit to do them, and they found themselves drawn to conversion. So I'm totally fine with that. I would also say this, too, that... Um, and, and Thomas Aquinas talks about this... Um, there's a kind of uh, prudence which even pirates have. Do you not agree? Like, they, they exercise their judgment to be better robbers, more efficient killers. Okay. Are, are they prudent? Well, after a sort, but the end is wrong, right? So the end is not God. The end is filling their ships with gold. Do you see the point? Um, all, what makes a work good is the question. Is it that it happens? This is a modern idea. Like, what makes a work good is that we do it. Um, in, in Christian thought, and actually in classical thought, the idea is, no, it's the end towards which it's, 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 it's going, right? So I think, I think you just have to clarify that. You say, well, you know, certainly it's good that you feed the poor. It's good that you do all these things. But who's the end? <laughs> what, to what end are you doing it? Is it altruism? Um, because the Christian always does it by and for the power of God. Right? Okay, just kind of lay that. Is that helpful? Because I think you kind of have two categories. One is to say, like, yes, they do, they do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, not realizing that the, that the Holy Spirit is leading them down this road. The other is, like, well, they're a noble pagan and they're doing good things for sure, but are they truly good in the sense that the, that the end towards which they're, they're acting is God? That's sort of the, the big question. Um, I, I think also, you know, there, there's a lot of altruism today, a lot of it. And, you know, you ask, yeah, listen, ask any teenager, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they'll say, I want to be this, I want to be that, I want to be that. Well, why do you want to do that? Well, to help people. Well, that's good. No, that's great. Um, but we've got to think further about the, I mean, this is really an important deal. We've got to really think further about the values that drive us, right? Because here's part of the problem. If one value system works and it kind of outruns its usefulness, then why not another one? Like, if, when my altruism runs its course and I start to get disillusioned, right? which is the first thing that happens with people who really do want to serve the poor, okay? So, you know, this is part of a big problem, right? It's like, uh, you know, you kind of reach this point of, and I've been through this myself, you reach this point of fatigue. It's like, I mean, I lived in inner city Stockton, California, and served in the most miserable slums you could possibly imagine. Uh, you know, drug needles, gunshots, all of it, every single day, day in, day out. And by the end of that time, I was just worn out. It was like, you know, somebody would come up, hey, man, can I, you know, I'd be like, dude, don't con me, you know, because I would just be like, I know your game, man. Like, now, could I have given the guy a couple bucks? Sure. But what, I, what I'm saying is that there reached a point when my personal altruism ran out is the point, right? And I was no longer motivated by love of God to do what I was sent there to do. Um, and and I, I, I reached a point of conviction, and that happens here too, is that, you know, you don't, you don't care for the poor because you think it's going to help them, even. Like, that's not a good enough reason. If that's your reason, then you're going to start to get disillusioned very fast. But if you serve the poor because you see Christ in them, and you want to serve Christ and the poor, then you'll do it. It's an amazing change. 
Um, so I kind of want to put that in front of you. So the, the, the world runs on this kind of altruism, and, and it's, it's um, I mean, it's better than nothing, I'll say that, but, but at the end of the day, it, 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 it doesn't advance us towards the goalpost, right, of holiness, of real holiness. Um, another example would be something like uh, Mother Teresa. Right? Mother Teresa was, was a very holy woman, very holy, and nobody denied that. What started to be the critique of her, though, is if she was really helping the poor, they wouldn't die under her care. She would aim much more towards giving them the medical care that they needed, and she and her poor sisters couldn't provide that medical care. But if they went out and raised money, they could hire a bunch of doctors and nurses, and then they'd have a real hospital, and they'd be able to actually care for these poor, and then they wouldn't die. So there was this critique that was leveled at her. And, you know, I don't think she ever really gave it a response because much of it happened posthumously. Um, but, but we have to say something about this. We have to respond to this. And I, I, I personally think her answer would have been something like this. There's a thing that's worse than dying. It's, it's dying without love. Do you, do you see, it's, it's the ends towards which we're actually going, right? Um, and, and there's a kind of altruism which says it's, it's our responsibility to make sure people stay alive and healthy and, and well-fed and all of that. And, you know, I don't disagree with that, but, but we have much bigger purposes in mind, way bigger that drive us as Christians. Um, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring this about. Okay, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? The Scriptures teach that by repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, I am forgiven my sins, and I receive the Holy Spirit, who gives me new birth in Christ and frees me from the power of sin. I love this. This is a great answer, really good answer. Um, and keep in mind that this catechism is written for adults who are becoming Christians, who are probably not baptized, right? It's by repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, right? And this is lifted straight from Scripture. What is it that those on the day of Pentecost ask Peter when they're cut to the heart? Remember this? He said, you know, Peter stands there on the day of Pentecost and says, this Jesus whom you killed, right, God raised from the dead. And they hear this and they're cut to the heart. And what do they say? They say to Peter, what should we do? <laughs> I think I would love it if our, if our readers on, Sunday, on Pentecost Sunday would, would just say it like that. What do we do? <laughs> that would be much better, right? Because that's what's going on. They, they don't know what's going on. They're, they're, they, they're, they are cut. Right? And what do they say? And what does Peter say? He says, repent and not... He doesn't say repent and believe. What does he say? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will what? Receive the promised Holy Spirit. Now, I'm convinced that as they were being baptized, they were professing faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. There's, there's no way, and I'll just say, there's no way that didn't happen, right? Um, it, we see it happen in the New Testament. We see it happen throughout the church's history, uh, throughout the history of the early church, that a profession of faith goes part and parcel with baptism, no doubt, right? Um, even if it's just, like, back then it would have been, you know, uh, all of them just sort of professing, Jesus is Lord. That would have been something very simple like that. But the reason I say this is that um, many, especially in America, right, where we have all these wonderful heresies, uh, but, but it's here that we have this kind of separation between baptism properly and this kind of rece re receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, a lot of this comes through a varied history, but, but essentially it's, it's a kind of... Um, it's a kind of casting doubt upon uh, infant baptism in particular, um, saying, well, that's not really that. But we don't want to make, we don't want to make, uh, we don't want to say that it didn't happen. What we want to say is that now you must receive the Holy Spirit in some other way, right? And of course, in Scripture, there's some evidence towards this, right? It's like uh, in Ephesus, Paul uh, meets Christians who had been baptized in, the, in, in John's baptism, and they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. They didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, and they're baptized. Uh, they're baptized again, right? So that's, that's not a giveaway that, that you know, they should have received. They, they, they needed to be baptized because they hadn't been baptized. Uh, but I, I, I feel the need to make this abundantly clear, which is that um, there's, there's a kind of um, bias against believing that anything more than just kind of an outward symbol happens in baptism. 
And the teaching of the church through the centuries has been very strong. The teaching of Scripture regarding, regarding baptism is very strong. It's that a lot more happens than meets the eye. I'll put it that way. Um, not only do you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the forgiveness of sins, you receive membership in the body of Christ, membership in His church, you become a member of Christ, as the Anglican Catechism says, um, and, and an heir of eternal life. Um, why? Well, because what we teach is that you're being reborn by being joined to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what makes you alive. Um, so I, I want to put that there. What makes you alive is that you have the breath of God in you, the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, without which, can you actually live? Like in the way that God intends? No, of course not. So that's, that's, the, that's the kind of language that I would, that I would think is, is really important. Um, I'm forgiven my sins. I receive the Holy Spirit who gives me new birth in Christ and frees me from the power of sin. Okay. Now you might say, man, my baptism doesn't seem, doesn't seem to be working very well, right? Because, you know, I still am a terrible sinner, and like, why isn't it working? Um, and I, I really want to really say this to you. Um, one of the great, like, there have been some, you know, Listen, I'm going to be the first one to tell you that I am, I am almost uh, incorrigibly uh, conservative when it comes to Christian doctrine. Uh, but one of the things that changed in the ancient church was this insistence that um, you, if you sin after baptism, you sin unto death. There was a deep change that happened. And I think it was a pastoral change. It was a change that, that went something like this listen, like, that standard isn't doing anybody any good. Like, it may be true. Right? <laughs> I think we need to say that. Like, it may be true, but it's not doing anybody any good to say, like, oh, well, that's it. You're done. You're excommunicated for this, right? There was a, a much more, um, there was much more a sense that you should be baptized as soon as possible, um, and not only that, but you should be given ample opportunity to repent for every fault, because there was an understanding that um, over the long haul, the Christian life of sanctification takes the long haul. It's a long road. Um, and so the pastoral sensibility that, that, that really won out was, um, this is going to take time. Um, but, I want to say this, it still is the truth that it is in our baptism that the power of sin was broken over us. Why? Because the power, the power of sin is death, as Paul says, right? What's the power of the righteousness of Christ? It's life. So the power of sin has been broken. Does that, now, this is part of the question, and I, I hope, you know, Alex is sitting there like, yeah, yeah, you get this. Like, one of the things that Augustine says about this that I think is really, is really powerful is that there's something that remains in us uh, after baptism, it's called concupiscence. Uh, it comes from the Latin concupere. It's kind of a, I'm not scrubbed of my sinful desires in baptism. They stick around. And I wish they were gone, but they stick around. Um, why? Well, I mean, I think, I think you can imagine the answer. That, you know, think about it. If every Christian was scrubbed of all their evil desires the day they were baptized... I mean, it'd be game over, right? Like, we would be amazing people, and all you got to do is be baptized, right? It would just be like, boom, yeah, everything's right, everything's good. Um, and, and we just see that that's not the case, uh, that, that we actually have to, we have to fight um, in the will. We have to carry out this long work of, of salvation in, this, in the sense of sanctification, um, and, and it takes a lifetime. Um, is it worth it? You bet it's worth it. <laughs> like, it's so worthwhile, right? Um, but, but nothing in this life is automatic, right? Um, we, we have to be cognizant of, of, uh, of simply the, the work of God in our, in our lives. Um, what I often find myself saying in confessions is, you know, thanks be to God that He hasn't dropped you, right? He hasn't dropped you like a bad habit. You're here, you're repenting. This is good, right? Um, I love what Maximilian Kolbe says about repentance. He's like, we shouldn't be ashamed when we repent. We should be ashamed when we sin. 
um, I think that's, de- that's dead on right, right? Like, that's what should lead us to repentance. Um, so, just throwing all that out there. Okay, you ready for the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Okay. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Holy Spirit is the very character of Jesus developing in us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Throughout the catechism, and this is by intent, it's made abundantly clear, something like this. And it's, it's like this because uh, the, the, the general editor of the catechism was uh, Jim Packer. And one of Jim's insistence in teaching is this. Um, may, and may he rest in peace. Um, this is my first time teaching through the catechism with him uh, uh, no longer with us. Um, but here's what he said. And he would say this a lot. To be made in the image of God means that you're made to be like Jesus. And the end of your life is to be with Jesus like him. To be where he is. Uh, so it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit to work in us the very character of Jesus. Um, so what, is, what does holiness of life look like for the Christian? It looks like Jesus. This is really important um, because the standard by which we measure it is not just sort of like, well, it'd be great if I could give this up or that up, you know, and that might be, that's success, right? Um, no, no, no. <laughs> success for the Christian is Jesus. <laughs> like, that's it. And I, my hand would have to shoot through the, through the sky. But, but there it is, right? Um, and I think that's really important. And what Paul says about this in Galatians when he lists the fruits of the Holy Spirit, um, which is a good thing to memorize, by the way, when he concludes on this, he says, against these things there is no law. Why does he say that? I could give you the whole argument of Galatians, but I'm not going to do it. Um, it's, it's something much more like this, that there are those who believe that by following a set of commandments, they can attain to the end of all human life, this kind of perfection. And Paul is saying something completely different, which is that the fruit of the Spirit is what uh, goodness looks like. It's what Christian perfection looks like. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against these things, there is no law. Okay. He means that in both the, uh, both the Jewish legal sense, right, according to the law, the Pentateuch, and, you know, the Ten Commandments and everything that follows, and also in the sense of civil law, right? We're not going around these days passing laws against goodness, we're not passing laws against self-control, thanks be to God, right? Um, part of what I want to make abundantly clear for you is something like this, that when you make up your mind to live according to the Holy Spirit, to live a life of fruitfulness and to live a life of sanctity, you begin to care a whole lot less about what potentially the government might do to you or what your employer might do to you or what your friends might think of you because you just say, I've already made up my mind, like, I'm not going to do X, Y, Z, and this is going to be the life that I live, and I'm going to live it no matter what anybody thinks, and that's it. Like, end of story. And what I want to say is, do you know what that, do you know what, there's a word for that. It's freedom. That's what freedom is, right? This is what, this is what the Scriptures are speaking about when they say, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, right? Because Why? What, what is the Holy Spirit given to us for? What's the end? Freedom. Does freedom mean doing whatever the heck you want? No. Freedom means doing what is right. The ability to do what's right. Well, how do we have the ability to do what's right? This gets right back to where you were. Because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Wonderful. Okay. So is this making sense, right? I think this is why, you know, I, in one sense, one of the things I love about Anglicanism is that, is that we don't we don't fall into these happy or quite easy divisions, right? Like we don't just sort of say, well, there are, there are those charismatic Christians over across the street and they, they do all those wild things and we don't. Uh, it's like, no. Uh, actually, every good Anglican will wind up thinking of themselves as a charismatic and it, because they'll just say, I, if I didn't have the gifts of God by the Holy Spirit, I'd be nothing. 
right? Every Anglican is an evangelical. Why? Because we care about the gospel, right? And we think about uh, the cross, and we, we consider uh, personal conversion, right? We know that. We believe in it. Um, but we're also Catholics, right? Um, why? Well, because Anglicanism, and I just want to kind of make this plug, is comprehensive, right? It's this idea of, um, it's, not, it's not the idea we have a corner on the market, right? It's the idea of everything that belongs to God, that belongs to Christ, that belongs to the church, belongs to us. No one, no one gets to claim all of it is ours, right? Um, I think that's really important. Okay, so now we're going to get on to the, to, the, to the real fun, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Among the many gifts of the Holy Spirit, named in the New Testament, are faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, other languages, tongues, the interpretation of other languages, and words of wisdom and knowledge. The Spirit distributes gifts to individuals as He wills for the sake of the body of Christ. Other gifts in the New Testament include, oh, sorry, include administration, service, encouragement, evangelism, teaching, giving, leadership, and mercy. Jesus promises that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Okay, so this is a big, long answer, and the reason it's long is that um, this, this was a kind of carefully negotiated settlement. Um, but, but here's what I want to say. Um, Anglicans ought not be cessationist. What I mean by that is that we ought not believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit have sort of stopped, because it's clear they haven't, right? There are plenty of gifts listed in this list, in this list that continue on to this day. Um, just because there are some who fake the gift of tongues does not mean that the gift of tongues does not exist to this very day. Um, in fact, if you read some of the wonderful accounts of evangelism going on in the Middle East today, you'll hear of Christians who wind up speaking strange dialects, right? Um, here's a great example. You might, you might be aware that, uh, that there's a vast difference between Arabic and Farsi. Like, Arabic speakers can't understand Farsi. Farsi speakers can't understand Arabic. It's always this thing. Little words, you know, a few words translate especially if you have some French, who knew, right? Uh, but there are countless examples of um, Arabic-speaking missionaries going into places like Iran or to Iranian communities and speaking Farsi. They don't know how. They don't know how it happened, but that's how it works, right? They go in and they, they speak Farsi, right? So this continues on to this day. Um, other things that I, would, that I would draw attention to. Healing, works of healing, works of miracles. Um, I have seen these. I've, born, I've witnessed these um, right in my sight. Um, one that I'll tell you about, there was a guy that uh, I was at, at, at our diocesan camp when I was a little kid. I was probably like 10. And there was this guy, John, and he could never run around and play football or soccer or anything because he had one leg that was shorter than the other. And it was by about two inches. He limped everywhere he went. And after a week at camp, walking everywhere, he was in miserable pain. His knees were burning. And he was crying himself to sleep at night. And uh, at the end of this week, uh, a good priest, and I'll never forget it, just had him sat in the back of this old school kind of hoopty Lincoln town car, you know. And he's sitting there in pain. And this priest lays hands on him. And in the sight of everyone that could see in the back of that car, his leg grew two inches. And I'm not kidding you, because I saw it. This kid got out of the car, and he was running around playing soccer. Just amazing. Our bishop, we were in Baltimore at this meeting of our Society of Priests, the SSC, and uh, there's a priest in our society who's known for being for being particularly gifted in healing. And our bishop was, was still the dean of the cathedral in those days, and he had horrible, horrible knee pain. Like, could barely walk kind of knee pain. And he was just really, really, really suffering. And this, this uh, well, Father Brian <laughs> came and said, let's, and this was during like a, a dinner. You know, we had this formal dinner, and and he's like, let's go pray for Dean Reed. They took him off into this room. They laid hands on him. And 
Later on that night, somebody was like, where's Ryan? He was playing basketball on the hotel basketball court because he was just so elated to be able to move again. Like, this happens over and over. I mean, I've seen people healed of cancer. I've seen people healed of all kinds of things. Why? Because the Holy Spirit breathes life into the church. Um, Think about the people that Jesus heals. Does he say, oh good, you're healed now. Come follow me. Do everything I say. Do everything I do. No, in fact, a lot of times he's like, go home. Live your life. That's huge. I want you to understand this, that like, the reason that gifts of healing are poured out upon the church is so that you and I can live, live a good life. It's a really simple understanding. Um, so uh, we offer those prayers of healing here at Christ Church. Um, one of the stories I want to share with you about Christ, that just kind of sits in my mind all the time about Christ Church is we had a, we had a couple that joined Christ Church probably five, five, six years ago, and they had struggled for 10 years with infertility. And they just said, as a last-ditch effort, we're just going to ask the priest to anoint her and lay hands on her every Sunday. And it was just this act of faith. Like, we're going to do it for a year, and if we're not pregnant by the end of that year, well, then we're just going to go try to adopt a child. Like, but this was their utter, like, it was, it was just their, and you, if you've known people who struggle with infertility, it's like, God, I just, you know, it's awful. Around about month seven or eight, she was pregnant. And she's had another baby since. Um, these little miracle kids running around, you know, and you just see it. Um, now, there was, some inter- there was some medical intervention, but it had been tried and hadn't worked for a long, long time. Um, but you see um, that, that this, 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 these gifts of healing still exist in the church. I could say a great deal about a, a bunch of other things. You know, prophetic gifts still exist, right? I've seen it. I've seen it, seen it, seen it. Um, man, I've seen it regarding Christ Church. I'll tell you the story. Seven, seven years ago, I was at this church planning conference, and this woman walks up to me and says, so you're going to, this was before we'd even moved here. She said, you're, you're going to Waco, right? Yeah. And she said, is it like in the middle of Texas? I said, yeah. She said, I've, I've been having dreams about a church being planted in the middle of Texas. And, and then she started saying, and there's this like beautiful big house with a giant porch and people like hanging out on the porch. And I think she was talking about our house. Like, and I can't, I don't know why, you know, like, listen, I don't know why that, but when, I, when times got really rough here at certain points, I went back to that and said, you know, that's going to, people, people believe this is going to happen, right? Um, so a lot of that is just so important, and we, and we have to have that. Um, let, me just, let me just say a few more. Um, the Spirit distributes gifts to individuals as He wills for the sake of the body of Christ. Um, this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, lots of philosophy books have been written about the common good, what it is, how it works, how you know what contributes to the common good or not. But Paul believes that what's given to the common good of the church, gifts are, gifts are given by the Holy Spirit for the common good of the church. And, and that means that, you know, listen, a lot of you have gifts that I don't have. Um, I think constantly of Stevie, right? Stevie has these unbelievable gifts of administration that I don't have. And it would be folly for me to sit there and say, I wish I had those gifts. No. Like, I have them because she has them, right? And they're given for the common good. Um, so you might say, well, I wish I could sing like her. When you can't. That's the point. Right? They're given for everyone. Um, and I would even say this, this is something we need to say on, on days like All Saints Day. Right? We need to understand that the gifts which the saints have received belong to us as well. Um, they're very important. Um, that's a, that's a big key. All right. Um, other gifts in the New Testament include, let me just, let me just, I'll get to you. Other gifts in the New Testament include administration, service, encouragement, evangelism, teaching, giving, leadership, and mercy. 
right? There are lots of people that do lots of different things. And one of the hardest things about this is to see people who have these unbelievably uh, vibrant ministries around the world and say, man, I wish I could be a Christian like that. And the, the reality of it is you are. You are, right? This is the biggest thing that I want you to get from this is that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, right? Just because you're not a missionary in Iraq, right? Just because you're not doing something really, you know, amazing, right? Listen, I'm convinced that some of the greatest acts of heroism in the church today are very, very, very basic. It's a man and a woman and their average children. This is what Chesterton says. It's the most extraordinary thing in the world. It's, you know, an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children you know, it's extraordinary. Um, so I want to want to just say that, uh, and part of that is part of that is to is to is to counteract something that I think, uh, you know, charismatics have gone wrong, and I want to be critical of them one time and then leave it behind. But the criticism that I would offer is that they they have a tendency to marginalize the normal Christian life, which is really not great. It's kind of like oh, well, you know, it would, be, it would be better if you did this or that, right? Well, wouldn't it be better if it was? And it's just sort of like the suggestion that the ordinary life is just not that great. Um, and and the, the answer that I would give is there's nothing wrong with the ordinary life at all. Um, in fact, we should actually strive to be ordinary in a certain sense. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so in one sense, I want to be really clear that, that biblical prophecy and prophecy today are probably misunderstood. It's not kind of soothsaying. That's not prophecy. Prophecy is teaching, if it's anything. Um, it's, it's a kind of, look at what's going on around you, okay? And this is the will of God in the midst of this, right? That's a kind of prophecy. Um, and that happens today for sure, right? right? It's kind of a keep your eyes open, look around. Right? Do you see what's going on? Okay, so this is, I went, in, I went into my kind of Old Testament class believing like, oh, you know, prophecy is this. And, and I, I came away uh, with, with a really good understanding, I think, of, of what biblical prophecy is. Um, and, it's, and it's something like this. The moment that we think, oh, it's, it's kind of... Uh, murky what's going on in the prophets, right? It doesn't make sense. It's all sort of uh, a lot of, a lot of um, mumbo-jumbo. Dig in deep, and you'll start to understand, no, they're being as explicit as anyone possibly could be, right? These kind of condemnations of the foreign nations have to do with what the foreign nations have done, right? Uh, all of this stuff that, you know, read Isaiah. It's stuff that's going on in his sight on the street, right? He, he's speaking of what he sees, and then he's speaking God's word, inspired word, into that. Does that make sense? So in a sense, like what happens today in preaching is a, is a form of prophecy, right? There's a kind of prophetic preaching which goes on. Um, it's not soothsaying. It's not seeing uh, in that sense or, or being a seer. Um, it's, it's more in the sense of speaking uh, uh, well, almost like speaking an advanced word to the church. Um, you'll note that, you know, I do this in preaching. I'll, I'll very, very often just say, this is what's coming. And you might deny it, but this is what's coming. And this is what you need to do because it's coming. Um, or this is what God is saying in the midst of this thing coming to us. Right? Does that make sense? Like, this is what's going on. Um, I hope that's helpful. Yep. Yep. 
Yep. Right. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of this is just a lot of this is just kind of like. Uh, I mean, a lot of this is charlatanism. Let's just be let's just be clear, right? It's it's charlatanism. Um, in fact, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, and Alex could probably tell you more about this than I could. But in the ancient church and things like the Didache, there are uh, kind of codes for what do you do when a prophet shows up at your door. And I can't, I'm, I'm struggling to remember it, but but it's something like you know, have them stay with you for a few, for a few days, and if they ask for money or they, you know, they show you that they're less than admirable or they, you know, they get drunk at dinner, then throw them out, right? Like, it's pretty straightforward. If they show that they are, um, also if they show that they are under authority as well, like, that, that's a good sign. Right? A lot of the fathers talk about, you know, if you, if you receive a prophet, you should ask who their bishop is. It's stuff like that, you know? It's like, ask who their bishop is, because if, if their bishop is a good guy, and the bishop, you know, and then if your bishop knows their bishop, and they can vouch for each other, then it's good, right? Um, but those authority structures in American Christianity are completely gone in so many places. Um, so, you've got a lot of charlatanism that comes about because of it, right? These are people that would be shut down in a normal, in a normally operating church with some degree of discipline. Does that make sense? Like, so, I think, I think one of the things we have to do is we have to just sort of say, I mean, it's, it's a place to be as innocent as doves and, and, uh, and, and also wolves uh, and be discerning about it, right? Um, it's, also the, it's also the case, too, that, you know, like today's gospel reading is a great example of this. If anybody says, I know the day, right? Scripture's pretty clear about this. Like, that person is a liar. Like, let's cut to the chase, right? They're a liar. They're lying to you, Okay. Why? Because no one knows the hour. No one knows the day. Nobody knows. Um, so there's a, just a, a good example of that. Um, I think it's, it's uh, and that's why I would say, this is what I would say. There are times when people feel very stirred up to say something, like almost to give a warning. Um, they almost always give it privately. They almost always will give it through authority. So that's, that's huge. That's key. Um, and, and to give you a sense of this, like, I've seen our bishops gather together in a college and discuss prophetic words sent to them from reputable people that they knew they should listen to. And it was very clear what was going on. It was... I'm writing you this because it has to be said because God is calling me to say it. And I have, you know, and it's not just like I'm some truck driver, you know, who, who is reliable. No, it's like I've been around, I'm under authority, I pray, I'm, these are like holy people, right? So I want you to hear that. Like, and part of the question is what do we do with this? And, and maybe, maybe it's just like let's take this under advisement and understand it. Like let's just have it in front of us. Um, and I don't want to get too in deep about it, but, it, but it's basically like that happens. And I want, I want you to know it happens because um, it's something that, um, well, I believe in, right? I mean, I really do. Um, but it's got to be held within this, in, within this large tension. The other thing I'd say too, just, just kind of lay it all out, is when people speak quote-unquote prophetically and they're also undermining, the, or, they're undermining orthodox teaching all the while, like, have nothing to do with them. Um, flatly. Like, <laughs> that's just basically like, like, and part of this is, you know, you should read Scripture with, with a catechism in your hand. You know, you should read Scripture with the, the tools of the faith in your hand. Right? You have to measure everything. Okay. All right. Why does the Holy Spirit give such gifts? The Holy Spirit equips and empowers believers with gifts for service in the worship of Jesus Christ, for the building up of His church, and for witness and mission to the world. This is quoting Ephesians chapter 4 here in, in part. And, and Ephesians has this wonderful image which is given. And Paul speaks in Ephesians about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father and also descending to the lower parts of the earth. 
And he kind of says, who, who is it that ascended but the one who descended? And it's kind of a, he's kind of, he's prepping you. He's prepping you to see something, right? Which is that when he ascends, um, it's so that he can give gifts to men. That's what Paul says. And so you know what he's talking about. He's talking about this ascending the right hand of the Father so that he can send the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus talks about in the Gospel of John, right? Um, and so Paul goes on this tear, and his gifts were given um, so that some might be apostles and prophets, evangelists, you know, all of this. Why? Um, what does he say? Um, um, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Right? And throughout Paul's writing, which is very heavy emphasis on this, um, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, he writes to the Corinthians, right? Strive to build up the church. Like, oh. He's writing to people that are like obsessed with speaking in tongues. And he says a lot of things, right? But one of the things he says is, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 in a tongue. What's he talking about? He's saying that the, that, the, that the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given for the building up of the church. They're not given to tear down the church. They're given to build up the church. Um, and so if you're eager to receive these manifestations of the Holy Spirit, strive to build up the church. This is why... I almost never listen to anybody who writes an email say, I think God is speaking to me to tell you what a bad job you're doing and how, you know, I could do it better than you. It's like, no, no, we're not doing that. Like, <laughs> it's why when we look for vestry members for Christ Church, I'm just going to give you the full straight skinny on it. We look for people who are like bought into the vision and who work to build up the church. Like, it's really simple um, because those who complain and those who uh, really seek to sow division and enmity are going to hate being our vestry because we just don't put up with that um, because we are about building up the church. Like when you come in and you see that sign on Sundays, you know, to build up the body of Christ. It's part of our mission. Um, and, and a lot of it is because we're eager for this manifestation of God's life in us, um, but that's how it comes. So I want you to, I want you to hear that. Okay, can I get the time from someone? Okay, it's time for me to get a watch, is what time it is. Uh, let's pray this prayer for, for the Holy Spirit's ministry. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful people and kindle in me the fire of your love. Direct and rule my heart in all things. Empower me for witness and ministry and daily increase in me, in me your gifts and fruit to the glory of God the Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. At the risk of jumping into a giant subject all at once, we're going to do like five minutes on the church. Um, and we'll jump right back into it next week, but I just want to kind of give you a preview so you can, can think about it, consider it for the next week. What is the church? The church is the whole community of faithful Christians in heaven and on earth, called and formed by God into one people. The church on earth gathers to worship God in word and sacrament, to serve God and neighbor, and to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Okay, this is a great, 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 very Anglican answer to this question. Um, I want to say very strongly that uh, one of the most surprising aspects of Anglicanism to those coming from other traditions, especially evangelical traditions, is our ecclesiology, um, meaning how do we think about the church? Um, a lot of that is true because many of you came from traditions where what makes the church is something like agreement. It's something like, you have a faith, Susanna, isn't that wonderful? And I believe in Jesus, and so we're the church, right? It's like, hold up, right? So there's this, this is the answer that's given, and I want to kind of jump into it right now. Um, the church is the whole community of faithful Christians in heaven and on earth. So there's your first sign that something's gone terribly wrong, right? Uh, the church includes those in heaven and those on earth. Um, listen, when we gather to, to celebrate the Eucharist, we say, therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, right? And we, and we start to sing, holy, holy, holy. Um, 
which, you know, the first place you see that is in Isaiah 6 when he has this vision of the throne room of God, right? Um, and then we see it again uh, later on in Revelation. Uh, but this is what I want you to see. This is one of the things I, you know, as we get towards Christmas, one of the things I love to do on Christmas, I love to do this on Christmas, stand in the back of that church as we're singing something like Silent Night, just sort of look up and say, I wonder how many angels are singing in the rafters, you know, hanging out with us. I mean, I wonder how many saints are singing with us. Um, Because that's what's going on in Christian worship, right? Christian worship is not just gathering those who happen to be walking around and alive with heartbeats, right? Christian worship includes the whole company of heaven. Um, there's a wonderful word in the Greek, in the Greek church, or in the Eastern church, that's, that's called uh, synaxis. And it, and it basically, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to get it translated properly. There, there really isn't a good word for it in English, but, but it's something like, with, with everyone crossing all of the boundaries which seem to divide us, most explicitly death and geography. Does that make sense? Like, and so the synaxis is like, it's something like what, uh, what um, golly, I'm forgetting all my writers, but, but there have been Catholic writers who've used, used, the, used the phrase for the church, here comes everyone, which I find wonderful, right? And I, you can see that happening right now. It's like, well, here comes everyone that's, who's coming into the church, okay? Um, the church on earth gathers. Do you see? So, actually, the word ecclesia in Greek means the gathered, the gathered people. Okay. In fact, uh, the, the gathered uh, democratic uh, voters in Athens were called the ecclesia, about four or 5,000 people. They gathered together to take counsel together, to elect leaders. Um, this is the word that's being used, this gathered people. Um, to worship God in word and sacrament. So you want to hold those two in tension. Both are important. Both have their place. Word and sacrament. So you note that in the liturgy, we celebrate the liturgy of the word, and then we celebrate the liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, it's all the Eucharist, but, it's, but it's, we go from preaching the, preaching the gospel, reading scripture to the altar. Okay? Those are the two parts of Christian liturgy, word and sacrament. And in fact, uh, the Anglican divines get their definition for the church from this identity of word and sacrament. It's actually a very Lutheran idea, um, but it's a very true idea, um, which is that, uh, that the mark of the true church is that the gospel is faithfully preached and the sacraments are faithfully administered. Okay? To serve God and neighbor. So, the church has a ministry of service and proclaims the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, the, the church is also on mission to the ends of the earth. Um, and as you read that, I want to remind you, as we read all of this, I want to remind you that, that the dead and the living participate in this. So I would even say to you, like, this is one of the craziest things, but, uh, but um, you, you may know that there's like widespread gospel work going on in Iran and China right now. And you may know this, that Christians um, used to be like, there were more Christians in Iran and China than anywhere in the world. I mean, Philip Jenkins writes about this, that you know, there, were more, there were more Christians in the East than there were in the West for a thousand, for a thousand years, you know, just a huge amount. Um, and uh, one of the things that people are talking about is that uh, the, the prayers of the saints of old, who nobody even knows their names anymore, are being answered in our day. Um, so, so that's happening right now. And it sort of takes some things to get, to get to come to terms with. But being in northern Iraq, I saw this. You know, you've, got, you've got traditional churches that have been there since the first century. And then there are kind of um, emergent new church identities. And one of the things they're having to do is, is start to come together and work together. But what their understanding is that, that uh, this is the church. Um, so we'll, we'll begin with more of this next week.
You can have it if you want to. Um, it's just for the just for the little kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, sorry about that. It was a miscommunication. It's just for childrens, just for the little kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's sufficient division among.